One of the things that makes On Being a little different is that we release the unedited version of my entire conversation every week. We do this for transparency, but also so you can be with us from the very beginning of the production process if you'd like. You can hear everything from what my guests had for breakfast to the small chat between questions to the gems that we just can't fit into the produced episode. Listen to my unedited interviews wherever you download your podcasts or at onbeing.org. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. It sounds like the beginning of a joke. An imam and a rabbi walk into a conference of Reformed Jews. But amidst reports of rising anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, there are also friendships and conversations like this taking place. It's so interesting. What you envy of Islam, I envy the opposite direction in the Jewish tradition. Our inability to talk about God? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Your discomfort with God. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Imam Abdullah Antepli was the first Muslim chaplain at Duke University. Rabbi Sarah Bassin serves Temple Emmanuel in Beverly Hills. I met them in a standing room only session at the Union for Reform Judaism's General Assembly in Boston. The tensions and dangers of our time are well known. I'm also interested, passionately interested, in the stories of our time that are hard and true and proceeding with grace and creativity. Stories that are not being told because they are not violent and not shouting to be heard. One of the stories of our young century is that all over this country, synagogues and mosques, Muslims and Jews, have been coming to know one another. There, are, there is friendship, there are shared community initiatives that didn't exist before. There are Jews and Muslims having each other's backs in times of crisis, both locally and globally. And there are programs and initiatives all over this country and across the world, a fair number of which these two have touched, um, that are patiently and at human scale planting the seeds for new realities across generational time. And in my mind, generational time, unlike real time, which we talk about all the time in the news cycle, generational time is faithful theological time. Um, It is a faithful theological sense of time and of the possibilities it is ours to create, even in the darkest moments. So I'd like to start um, where I always start my conversations, by hearing... Just a little bit about this. How would you would begin to talk about the spiritual, religious background of your childhood? Rabbi Bassan, would you like to start? Yeah, my, um, my spiritual journey as a child actually began in utero because my mom actually became a Jew by choice when she was eight and a half months pregnant with me. Um, so she immersed in the mikvah while, uh, while I was still inside of her. But the Catholic background that she had and and my exposure to her half of the family, even as I was raised solely as a Jew, was so deeply important for how I understood my spiritual upbringing as a kid. And I got this deep and profound language of justice in the reform movement that really stuck with me about giving me a sense of purpose and rootedness and um, that my faith was to be a faith put into action. Hmm. But... The most lived experience that I had of that was actually through stories from my mom's side of the family. And uh, that Catholic social that justice Catholic, tradition. That Catholic social justice yeah. tradition. My, my grandfather, who died before I, I was born, I never met him. Um, he was a small town physician. And he would be the type of doctor that accepted pickles for payment. And all of the stray animals that people had would get dropped on um, the doorstep of that family. And I grew up with these stories about you know, how they went to integrate the, the pool on the first day that it was on racially, that it was racially integrated. And um, that was my sense of what faith looked like in action. Yeah. 
Uh, so, Imam Antepli, you, you were born in Turkey. Um, how would you talk about uh, the spiritual or religious background of your childhood? Um, mine is a little bit more <laughs> eventful and problematic. Uh, I grew up in a Turkey, especially my family background, it was violently secular. My father hated religion in general, Islam in particular, so much that he named all his children uh, after pre-Islamic Turkish gods. Um, so Abdullah is the name in Hebrew, Ovadia, the servant and slave of God is something that I took on when I became religious. And I'm not unique. In my generation... What was your name? What was your given name? <laughs> Tunjai, which hmm. means full red moon, which uh, shaman Turks used to worship. Uh, so interesting. Can you imagine your father naming you like Krishna or, um, <laughs> or your father naming you Amalek? Uh, <laughs> so when I, became, when I became very religious in my mid-teenage years, Islam in many ways uh, came and filled the kind of empty space that I always felt in my heart. That, that legal ritualistic tradition forces you to slow down five times a day, remember God, focus internally, encourages you to grow internally as much as externally. It just spoke to me so beautifully. What attracted me to God and religion in the first place, one of the most consistent central emphasis in Islam is God is not an intellectual game. It's not a vertical relationship. You cannot experience the presence of God in your life only with your relationship with God. If you claim to love God, it has to manifest itself in the horizontal service of humanity. You have to make a difference in the life of others. And Abdullah, I felt it was just capturing that, mm. the servant mm. of God, slave of God. And uh, I hope I'm living up to that name. So there's a definition of ecumen. You know, ecumenism is, the, is intra-Christian relationship conversation, which, in, you know, I was born in 1960, and it's hard to remember how, you know, in 1960, where I grew up, um, a mixed marriage was a a Methodist Baptist marriage, right? I mean, we, we forget that we have come a long way in many ways, as hard as things are. Um, and my favorite definition of ecumenism was from this great Paulist priest who actually was um, Pope John XXIII's liaison to non-Catholic observers to Vatican II. And his definition of ecumenism was, ecumenism is that which we would have more of if we had a better word for no, it came into that, which if we had a better word for, we would have more of. And I've been really aware of this for many years. And I, so, so I'm, I'm saying that by way of saying, so even the phrase interfaith relations or Muslim-Jewish dialogue, we need these words. We can't get rid of them, but they, they're so clinical. And I think that, so I'm, so I'm just saying that by way of saying, as we continue to speak, I'm going to try to avoid them. And because I think these words don't convey the beauty, the depth, and the, and the transformation that happens um, in these experiences. And that it's really important that those of us involved in these, you know, use a great ecosystem of words and stories um, to talk about what happens to us. If I may, one of yeah. those words is Abrahamic. Mm -hmm. I just hate that term, mm -hmm. but I don't know. I don't have a better one. Right. Uh, Abrahamic family, Abraham, Jews and Muslim spiritual cousins. You know, every time anybody says Abrahamic family, I wonder if these Hindus and Buddhists, they look at us and say, what a dysfunctional family. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like, what is family? Right. <laughs> and, and putting Abraham, the old guy in the center, again, glorifying men as if none of the women in this story makes any, yeah. any meaningful contribution. That's a good, it's a good example. Yeah, and, we should find and it some is, new terms. It is meaningful, but it has limits. All yes. these, these, these phrases are meaningful. Absolutely. They have limits. Yeah, I just, um, I guess so, the, the question I want to ask coming out of that is, if I, if I said, you know, how would you start to convey that, what this does to you and to your identity and your own tradition? The language that I've used to describe that is, yeah. is a feeling of holy envy. That holy, holy, holy envy, envy right? That, um, you know, I say that there are a lot of things that each religious group does particularly well, right? And I think that often when people encounter the Jewish community, one of the things they really admire is our diversity of opinion and our way to argue and how rich and how alive that conversation is. Um, but we're also not that good at talking about God. 
And we also don't have woven into our fabric on anything other than an annual basis, what actual forgiveness looks like, you mean right? In Jewish, in, in the Jewish, Jewish in, yep. in, in Jewish theology and yep. Jewish practice, right? So when I look at Christians and see how they internalize that language of forgiveness, right, and have this model in Jesus of what that looks like, I want to know what that is in my language, right? And and also when I look at Muslims and see the way that this language of God just flows through you right? Without any sort of self-conscious awareness. I want that. I'm envious of that. And it's, it's not an envy that does anything detrimental to me, right? It's an envy that actually makes me want to dig for it in my own tradition. Right. There's, this, there's a Rosh Hashanah reflection or sermon from you on the way Jews speak of our father, our king. Mm. Here's what you wrote. It's beautiful. So why do we conjure up both notions of God in one breath? And you say, I believe that this prayer is trying to teach us an essential life skill, that of holding two contradictory ideas in our heads simultaneously without rejecting either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's complicated, right? That um, interfaith relations, for all the limitations of, of that term, that it's simultaneously enriching and deeply challenging and, and frustrating, you know, I walk away from conversations feeling fulfilled and transformed, but I also walk away feeling really agitated sometimes because the other person doesn't understand where I'm coming from or how can they not get how important this particular concept is, is to me, um, that both things are true at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. Um, and my, my biggest holy envy of Judaism is absolutely Shabbat. Like this is something the world needs more of it it's imagine like when the world's largest, most effective and influential religion, capitalism, <laughs> is, is telling you work more, harder, buy more, study harder. Like there's one voice from yeah. Sinai for 5,000 years saying once a week, don't do that. It's so interesting. What you envy of Islam, I envy the opposite direction in the Jewish tradition. Our inability to talk about God? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Your discomfort with God, your wrestling with God, uh, your ability to question my, one of my mentors at Shalom Hartman, the president of Shalom Hartman, he uh, wrote a book titled, he's a rabbi, Orthodox rabbi, Putting God Second. But only a faithful Jew can say that. Only a faithful Jew can develop a respectful language. Even, you know, the famous Talmudic, uh, when rabbis were arguing, finally God speaks and takes side of one rabbi. And the other rabbi says, that's not your position to argue. (laughs) And they say, they put God into his own place. You know, there is no way, no stretch of imagination, even an imam smokes anything that he wants to smoke. We can't go there. We just can't. That's not, that will really fundamentally challenge. But it's so good that you can. So I can look from your shoulder and enjoy that that's possible. That I don't have to be content with Always, uh, I, can, I can be uncomfortable with certain divine blessings. That's a holy envy for me. And Jews do this better than anybody else. You know, I have to, <laughs> I have to say that, that that richness and that diversity is actually part of what has rooted me in a sense of feeling deeply authentic in doing interfaith work. Because inevitably you get the challenges of that it's, it's fluffy, that it's not real, yeah. that it's, um, it's surface level. Um, but if we take seriously that there are 70 faces of Torah, right? If we take seriously that by more, minority opinions are just as important to incorporate. If we take seriously machlochet l'shem shemaim, that we're supposed to argue for the sake of heaven, then why are we limiting that to only an internal conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And, and absolutely, you have something to add to my understanding of Torah, especially because you're not on the inside, right? That you have, you have a different way of holding a mirror up to me. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, as part of the Civil Conversations Project, a live conversation at the Union for Reform Judaism's General Assembly in Boston, I'm with Imam Abdullah Antepli and Rabbi Sarah Bassin. 
Imam Antepli was the first Muslim chaplain at Duke University, and Rabbi Bassin serves Temple Emmanuel in Beverly Hills. She was the first executive director of New Ground in Los Angeles, an organization started by young Jews and Muslims tired of being captive to an old hard fight. They call it a partnership for change. at some point felt compelled to get involved, to wander into this space, and not just to get involved, but to create some new forms to do it. And you each had kind of tipping points um, that really also are flashpoints in our life together writ large, as, as I've been reading into you. So, so Rabbi Bassin, I think a tipping point for you was 2009, um, when you were working at the Los Angeles Board of Rabbis. You want to tell that story? I was an intern for um, the Board of Rabbis, which is the body of um, rabbis associated with a larger Jewish community, uh, cross-denominational. And while I was working there, it was um, one of the conflicts that broke out in the Middle East. And outside of the Federation building, there was actually a, a protest that was breaking out, a pro-Palestinian protest that was, that was starting to emerge. And so all of us who were on the, uh, on the top levels were told, go downstairs and be ready to counter-protest, right? We have to show strength in numbers. And when I went down there, I have this vision seared into my head of this one guy who was just kind of nervously and anxiously pacing back and forth and, and, and kind of mumbling to himself, like, we have to get a bigger megaphone. We have to get a bigger megaphone because we were disorganized, right? Because we weren't as effective as the other side. And I just remember, like, sighing in frustration of, really, that? That's what's going to solve this is a bigger megaphone? All that's going to do is add to the yeah. problem, and if we don't figure out a way to do something other than scream at each other across the street, then this is never going to solve itself. And so by the time I actually started um, Newground, when I was a, a new graduate from Hebrew Union College, when I was, was starting this and seeking out mentors' advice, people who had done interfaith relations, I sat down with a mentor who told me that I was wasting my life and that I was never going to be hired in the mainstream Jewish community again because of the people that I was working with. And Newground and Los Angeles, let's say, was, was especially heated. Yes. I mean, it hard, this has hard, been hard everywhere, but it was especially entrenched in Los Angeles. And it was a lot of young Muslims and young Jews right. who created Newground yeah. to chart a different path. I, I mean, the dysfunction had played out in city politics at the city level. Yeah. Um, and so Newground was formulated to not reach the top levels of the community leaders and to start one level below where it could be a little bit more under the radar. Which I think is also a new form, right? Yeah. We've been so focused on what's at the top, and that's just so broken. Yeah, and so when you have a, a quieter conversation, it has more potential to be more permeating mm -hmm. into different parts of, of the community. And that, for me, is the greatest sense of pride that I have, right? Not, not kind of gathering the people who are already predisposed to it, but getting the people who were suspicious of the conversation to start to be curious about it. Mm -hmm. And so I, we're going to go into what were some really granular things that you're learning. But I, So for now, I just want to kind of set the scene in terms of how you both stepped out of the old models. And so I think a tipping point for you, um, and I mean, obviously there were many, but, but these were the ones that jumped out at me, was when you organized a trip uh, through Wesleyan University, when you were, you were at Hartford Seminary at that point, I yes, think? Yes, I was a student there, but working uh -huh. as a Muslim chaplain at Wesleyan. Okay. And I guess you went to Turkey and to Israel. Yes. And it was a trip that, that I guess the Turkey part of it was very successful, and the Israel part was a failure. And that really got you reflecting, it seems like. Absolutely. I think what you are referring to is those moments in life in the life of your community where you feel there's a prophetic moment. Prophetic moment meaning both in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and there's a prophetic moment emerges. Uh, usually that really requires very radically questioning the collective wisdom, which you see it's failing. That they, well, most of the attempts to solve the problem is making things worse. And both in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, when a prophet emerges, none of them come to their community and say, God loves you. You guys are awesome and amazing. You don't have to change anything. They come and say, you guys screwed up. God is angry, like you are falling short in your ethical moral commitments. 
What that trip told me, and consecutive conversation with the American Jewish community and American Muslim community, we, have, we are not understanding each other. Mm -hmm. And our sources of information vis-a-vis -vis each other, um, the way in which if we cannot develop a common language without triggering social anxieties, existential anxieties in each other's, we will never go anywhere. Because it was very clear that we were looking at the same picture, but what appears in the Jewish mirror, what appears in the Muslim screen is completely different reality. Mm -hmm. It was a very clear evidence of that. And you also described how, um, you know, when, you were, when you've talked about that trip, you know, you did things like organize debates that had one Palestinian and one Jew in order to understand both narratives. And it, it, and it didn't do anything differently than what it does in the political sphere, which is to start a fight. It just made things worse. Mm -hmm. It's just that kind of partisanship, that kind of debate culture, throwing self-serving facts, United Nations resolutions to one another. That shouting match, it only increased the partisanship which is plaguing us, which is intellectually killing our curiosity, which is killing our willingness to listen to people who may disagree or our ability to see that there is actually some point. You don't have to agree, you don't have to endorse, but at least to come, that debate model is unfortunately ruining our intellectual, especially moral and spiritual lives. Mm -hmm. I remember actually Rabbi Hurt Manheimer when we met years, when, when maybe was that five years ago? 10? Feels to me like it was, yeah, it was, feels like it was to me the early nine, post 9-11 years. And you were talking to me about um, all the, the experimenting and kind of probing that especially Reform Judaism was making into relationship and dialogue with the Muslim community and how you were discovering a kinship and even a kinship that was different from the, from the more familiar uh, Christian Jewish dialogue. And, I, you know, and I, I think as a journalist, so when I started my work, also in those early years of the century. One thing I was aware of is um, in the newsroom, whenever, I you know, whenever you had someone on from a tradition, the people in the newsroom would say, you know, at the top of the show, you have to say, we need to tell us, what do they believe? And you know, that is a Christian question, and you can do that with, Christian, with Christianity, although it doesn't, it's very superficial, but you can do that. You can say they believe this. You can't do it with Islam or Judaism. These are traditions of lived piety. Um, and so, like, you know, that's one thing I saw at the very beginning in terms of this kinship, you know, as you say, with this simplistic Abrahamic Clinical. thing. <laughs> Absolutely right. If anybody tells you, Islam is whatever. Christianity says, Judaism believes. Shy away from these people. At its best, they are just naive and uninformed. At its worst, they are just lying. No religion of 1.6 billion people, 1,400 years of history says one thing or believes in one thing or strongly condemns or endorses one thing. That's just not, and Christianity is not what New Testament says only. Judaism is not what Tanakh says, only. Islam is not what Quran and uh, Muhammad said 1,400 years ago. Islam is what Muslims do. You have to see the human manifestation of that text over time, and not just one community, one episode, one time period, but over centuries. What we have been doing or what we have done is our religions, our tradition. You know, I would say the one point of kinship that is actually a point of difficulty in the conversation between Jews and Muslims is that both of us, when we enter into an interfaith conversation, we're used to being victims. Hmm. And when Jews enter into a conversation that's interfaith with Christians, we come and we say, okay, we're victims now, we're ready for the apology, right? <laughs> we can't do that with the Muslim community because the Muslim community also comes in with a narrative of colonialism and their own narrative of victimization. So we're sitting here and we're waiting for an apology, just as the Muslim community is coming to that conversation waiting for an apology too. So while it's this shared approach, right, and this shared experience of history, it actually creates a flashpoint and a complication when yeah. we talk to each other. Hmm. Um, so let's talk about some of the things that, that, that you're learning. 
And I believe, Rabbi Bassan, you've actually, in, in one of your, I feel like you've done so much at such a young age, but at some point, where were you with the U.S. Muslim Jewish relations at the Center for, you were at the Center for Muslim Jewish Engagement, which is um, at USC, directed by Rabbi Reuven Firestone. And you were part of a project that was actually mapping, right? You were mapping the new landscape of what we're not going like to call it was forever ago. Okay, and we're point. not going to call it interfaith relationship, whatever <laughs> yeah. that is, uh, yeah. that kinship relationship, new conversation. Um, just, uh, just kind of tell us about, and I guess as you say, it feels like forever ago, and and the landscape has continued to change. And yeah, the landscape grow. has evolved tremendously. That was that was probably two thousand eight, two thousand nine, maybe that I did that, and it feels like a world of difference. Mm-hmm. I think when I was doing that report, part of it was a hunger for me of looking for people who are like-minded and doing this work and, and trying not to feel so alone, right? What would it look like for us to feel more networked and to feel like there were more energy and power rather than these isolated things that were yeah. happening sporadically? You know, and, and since then, the, the network has gotten a lot more sophisticated. And, and there is a sense of, you know, I, I knew about Imam Antepli well before I ever met him and, and vice versa. There's this sense of, we know who the players are. We know where this good work is being done. And we're all relying a lot on a lot of the same tools to make it happen. Yeah. As the fuller side of the glass is quite impressive, but also I think since 2008 and nine, the emptier side of the glass is also very significant. Yeah. Um, landscape change for better, also for worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Muslim anti-Semitism is worse than what it was. And the Jewish Islamophobia, the anti-Muslim bigotry in the Jewish community is a lot worse, a lot sharper. And, and I just mm. want to jump in here because you've, you have been so clear about being vocal of the anti-Semitism in the Muslim community. And it's appropriate and right and fair for me to say that Islamophobia really is a significant problem in the Jewish community as well. And um, it's not a truth that we like to face, but it's one that um, is deeply ingrained in our understanding of self and particularly manifests with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict of our prism through which we view all Muslims Mm -hmm. and the fear that we have towards even our Muslim neighbors in the United States, Um, this internalized uh, Islamophobia from the larger culture that has this particularly Jewish flavor that we add to it from our own experience. Thank you, Sarah. But uh, not but and I, my dismay and disgust, deep disgust for Muslim anti-Semitism is not a demand for reciprocal gesture. Quite honestly, I despise Muslim anti-Semitism because I know what hate does an individual to a community. When hate becomes unchallenged, if it goes freely and often masked under certain political arguments, it erodes the ethics and morals of that community. If we allow Muslim anti-Semitism go louder and stronger than what it is now, it's going to destroy American Islam. I have all the selfish interest, in all honesty, uh, to save the soul of uh, American Muslim communities to make sure in its earlier stages we are gonna quarantine that cancer and wipe it out. Listen again and share this conversation with Imam Abdullah Antepli and Rabbi Sarah Bassan through our website, civilconversationsproject.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, as part of the Civil Conversations Project, a live conversation at the Union for Reform Judaism's General Assembly in Boston. I'm with Imam Abdullah Antepli and Rabbi Sarah Bassan. So, and you probably can't answer this question, and I'm not sure how much of a Try difference. Us. 
I'll try you. And it's the kind of question I ask, and I'm not, uh, I'm not sure how much difference it makes, but I, I guess the, the question I want to ask about this phenomenon that you're actually both seeing is this fear and this um, hate. hate. Um, is it actually, you know, is it spreading? You know, is it, is it truly more and more people? And or is it that you know, that these voices are louder and more trusted and, um, or, or have, have seized some authority that wasn't there before. Maybe it's all of those things. I, I'm always curious about this. I, I don't think it's more widespread. I do think it's deeper. I think that the people who The were, places where it might have been before. Where it already had really a hold, it now has a stranglehold. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, I've, I've witnessed, even in, in my own community, since coming to, to Temple Emmanuel, some really transformed perspectives through actual lived contact with Muslims, right? We had this experience at the beginning of the year where um, there were all those bomb threats that were coming into Jewish institutions, and there was a palpable fear, mm-hmm. right? And the vast majority of us were pretty sure that it was going to be a Muslim who eventually was going to be revealed to be the person behind it. Of course, at the end of the day, it wasn't. It was, it was somebody who was Jewish. But um, in that moment, that's when my Newground network got activated. And one of our alumni came to, um, brought a group of Muslims to seven different synagogues on seven different Shabbatot as a statement of solidarity. And when she showed up, I mean, it, it touched my heart, right? The, the, the depth of relationship and what those years of building that relationship actually looks like. And that moment, it felt like it paid off in a kind of way. Mm. Um, but the way that it touched my community, it just tore down those walls and tore down those barriers. So I don't think that it's wider. I think it's louder, and I think that that hate is deeper. But I don't think it's wider. Mm-hmm. I, um, I have a slightly different take. I think all the causes, causations of this cancer and tumor is absolutely right. But I think why it's so more visible and hurting us more is our immune system is deteriorating. Uh, Our ability to resist and detect hate is the wider community is losing its immune system. That's why I'm saying cancer. What cancer does is it's not getting any stronger, but it makes you weaker that even a small dose of it can destroy you. Um. You know, I think, Imam Antepli, there's something, the way you, and I, and I, I think part of what we get into, into with, with um, interfaith experiences is the representing a whole tradition, right? So I don't want to say the way you represent Islam, but you're, the position... <laughs> I do that all the time. The perspective, you do. The perspective and the position you take is, you say very clearly that it's not true to say that ISIS people in ISIS are not Muslims and that their ideology has no connection to Islam. And you also say things like this, um, that the reason religion has become, part one of the reasons religion has become such a divisive force in the world is that the crazies and nut jobs of our faith communities hijack the faith as they zealously promote the narrow, exclusive, and even violent interpretations of our faith traditions. So again, there's one of those both ands. Sure, sure. I wholeheartedly, I feel very passionate about this. Solution to the ills and the evils of our communities are not disowning them. It is so easy and cheap and quick to say, ISIS is not Muslim, Hezbollah is not Muslim, Hamas is not Muslim. You can't say that. As much as they turn my stomach upside down, as much as I am disgusted what they represent, I cannot disown it. I cannot say Osama bin Laden is not Muslim. And I cannot tell you, one of the biggest pastoral crises related to this is, unfortunately, Muslim crazies are so publicized, unfortunately, many Muslim kids are internalizing this. Like, I cannot tell how many times I broke into tears at home with my kids or uh, my students at Duke University. Whenever they see a crazy Jew or violent Christian, it's amazing. They come and say something like, we don't own all the crazies in the world. Like, almost misery likes company which is quite horrible. Solution is not to divorce ourselves from our moral responsibility. We have to own this uh, cancer, and we have to defeat it in its theological, ideological ground, and we have to defeat it in its uh, social, political, and cultural ground. 
those well-meaning Muslims, whenever they say, no, it has nothing to do with Islam, they don't realize how much they look like an ostrich hiding his head on the, on, on the sand, unfortunately. But at the same time, there is a moral crisis that in all faith tradition, the crazier you are, the more publicity you get. Uh, that, crazy... That's just true of, that's the way, yes. well, that's also the way journalism works these days, right? I mean, it's not, it's, it's also true of politicians. I don't understand what, <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, makes... religion is caught in this. In Absolutely, this, if I hit Sarah, we'll be in New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> but this is not going to make front page New York but Times. But it's also depicted in some, in some ways as the more authentic version yes. of what religion is too. And that's, that's where I think all of our responsibility comes in in saying, like, that is not the only thing that religion is. And I completely agree with you, right? The Jewish approach to dealing with our crazies is to dismiss it as a statistical anomaly, right? Or to say that that's not my type of Judaism. We may not say they're not a Jew. We're really big on the peoplehood concept, but we'll say that's not my type of, of Judaism, which does that same distancing. And, and I think that we actually have to have that internal battle for the soul of our religion to try to move that center back to a place where it embraces the love over the violence, but both are pieces that, that we have to wrestle with. Also, I think it's a very common intellectual disease that the authenticity is only seen as externality. Mm-hmm. The way you look I will never forget one of my students, I was going to do his wedding, said, can you not trim your beard for three weeks? Because it's not long enough. It's just, uh, just as if, as if the, the, the authenticity and piety is in the length of my beard. I don't have to bust my brain to read more books and get more knowledge. All I need to do is not to shave and look a <laughs> look little bit like as if I just rolled out of my bed. That's unfortunately a common human intellectual disease. Like what makes... Traditionally, somebody dressing up like a Polish aristocrat, thinking Moses walked in the desert like that. What makes him more authentic than somebody who is uh, who's living internal Jewish ethics and morality in the most devotional way possible? It goes along with how often I get told that I don't look like a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, as part of the Civil Conversations Project, I'm with Rabbi Sarah Bassan and Imam Abdullah Antepli. Rabbi Bassan serves Temple Emmanuel in Beverly Hills, and Imam Antepli was the first Muslim chaplain at Duke University. He's also the co-creator of the Muslim Leadership Initiative at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. We are at the Union for Reform Judaism's General Assembly in Boston. One of the things, Rabbi Bassan, that you've talked about is, um, you know, there's this, there has been this habit in this sphere of diving right into the conflict, diving right into the conflict, or avoiding the conflict entirely, and both of those fail. They just, they fail. But there are some, there are some simple things that, that you've both been involved in, just different framings and starting points and exercises to walk people into a different space, Muslims and Jews. Um, so one of the things I noticed, and I, mean, I just want to talk about this a little bit, you were telling the story about in Newgrounds Fellowship Program. And I know Newground, again, which was started by young people um, on both sides, uh, has just really been so innovative in creating a different kind of relationship. You talk about uh, the the one of the exercises of asking everyone to listen to a series of statements. So, so the Jews are on one side, the Muslims are on the other, and you start with some statements. So just, just describe kind of what happens and what that affects. Like, yeah. So, um, you know, there there are a lot of different versions of this game. When one of them is me and all my neighbors, right? So, me and all my neighbors are wearing blue jeans. Whoever's wearing blue jeans steps into the circle and uh, sees who else is wearing blue jeans, right? Then you gradually kind of raise the stakes of of that game and get more and more deep and more and more personal, Mm -hmm. right? Me and all my neighbors have lost someone to religious violence. Me and all my neighbors have experienced uh, hate crime, right? And without ever saying a word, 
just by seeing those connections and how they don't always break down across faith lines. So in the if that, way that statement you think, is true of you. You walk you into, the step center, into the circle. And so immediately the one group on one side and the other group on the other side. It breaks down. Standing together based on experiences they share, which are quite deep. Yeah. Yeah. So it redraws those lines. And you don't only have those definitions of, okay, I'm walking into this room as a Jew and I'm walking into this room as a Muslim. Maybe it's, oh, I'm walking into this room as a woman who's experienced sexual harassment in my religious community. Mm-hmm. Or I'm walking into this room as somebody with a disability who's felt rejected in some way by my community. And when you redraw those lines, it creates that connection in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that that image of opening up a new space is really important. And in fact, it's a, it's a new form. It's a very different approach from we're going to have a debate or mm-hmm. even we're going to inform each other and then find common ground or agree. And I think we all, you, you've both spoke about it. Thought about this so much of how you know sometimes it, you know when we've celebrated diversity or leaped to common ground, everything has been so superficial. Um, and you know, there's a there was an interesting. Um, this was an interview with you and Yossi Klein Halevi, and he says this is exactly what drew me to trust Abdullah in this project. I told him, you know, I am not a dove, I am not a leftist. My positions are very mainstream, skeptical Israel. And you said back, and I'm not interested in marginal Jews who will agree with everything Muslims believe about Israel. You know, Frances Kissling, who um, has been a real model for me, I mean, she's, she came out of the abortion debate. As you say, this is a larger cultural dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing she said is this push that we have to agreement works against our understanding when there's really deep really deep disagreement to start with. It works against our understanding each other, you know, which gets back to your point, beginning with understanding. But that's, it's very countercultural to speak that way. In this culture, it sounds like, like you, it's not a serious enterprise if you're not about agreement. I don't know. I, I because wonder. zealotry is a value more than compromise, right? Or, or, mm-hmm. or idealism is more of a value than... Um, the ability to be uncomfortable. But I do think, especially in this past year, all of these calls that we're hearing for more civil conversation, that the pendulum is starting to swing the other way, and we're at least acknowledging the need for it, even if we're still feeling around culturally in the dark for what those skills actually look like. Also, there's a conflation of political disagreement with moral, moral disagreement. And I think many communities are not able to um, register their political disagreement, but build an overarching moral connection with one another. Yossi is like my brother. Um, there is hardly anybody who's closer to me li- like him. But watch us when we talk about Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Watch especially us when we talk about Iran. I feel he's possessed with Iran. Uh, I feel uh, he's exaggerating that problem. But do I ever doubt his integrity? Do I ever doubt his moral red lines? Do I ever doubt his moral imagination? And in that, I think many people think political disagreement translates itself as moral arguments. Mm-hmm. Although I think that language of moral imagination, kind of reviving that, nurturing that muscle, as you've said. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's... Um, I, think, I think we have abandoned the language of, of morality, and, and I want us to have more moral courage. Hmm. And not to shy away from things that are controversial and to embrace those things that are going to get us in trouble. You know, one of the things I'm really lucky at with my, with my synagogue is that I put forth this plan for difficult conversations that I wanted our community to engage in. And I put out the line that the only people I don't want in this space are people who are going to physically threaten our security. But beyond that, I think with that we want to welcome as diverse voices as possible into this space. And, and it's, it's been hard, and some people have been challenged by it, but ultimately the leadership has really embraced that because they see the need for it. You have to do this. Yeah. You have to face the ugliness in, in yourself and in your community. Most of the moral conversation is this, uh, hitting the chest of the other side, what moral failures that you see. Yeah. But the real moral conversations is to put an honest mirror, put yourself into a CT scan, CAT scan, and see what the report is, what is in you, in your community. 
how much moral energy and commitment and drive is uh, behind what you do, and how much of this shallow, shallow politics. That's why it's very difficult. But we should absolutely shake the moral imagination of our communities. We have to improve the level of self-critical, moral awakening, moral courage in our communities. So, you know, we've been talking about what it means to be Jewish and Muslim and in relationship. And we're all also inhabiting this reality of being alive in the year 2017, which is a moment of tumult globally. And Rabbi Bassan, I, I, in your, your uh, Rosh Hashanah sermon this year, you seem to be drawn to those. Um, I need to come to your synagogue on Rosh Hashanah next year. I, I can get you a free ticket. Okay. All right. <laughs> Okay, um, you were talking about the Kabbalistic interpretation, the creation story, um, as, as a Jewish lens to Martin Luther King's prophetic statement that darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. So I, 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 like, I wonder if you would just offer that up, and then I'd, I'd like to hear kind of, of a text or a metaphor of, of Islam that is with you in this moment writ large, so yeah. One of the feelings that I needed to speak to as a rabbi in 2017 was uh, this feeling of, of spiritual exhaustion um, that people were having at, at the kind of darkness and hate and anger that was building. And, you know, I, I know that we need to be recharged. So the story that I referenced was the fact that on the same day um, that that uh, white supremacist march happened, um, a group of our congregants, about 20 of our congregants, who we formed this partnership with an organization called TIA that serves refugees resettling in Southern California. Um, a group of us went down to Orange County to help them prepare with a back-to-school day for about 300 refugee kids, many of whom were going to be returning to school for the first time since leaving their war-torn countries. And if you want a better metaphor of what light driving out darkness looks like, you couldn't think of one then you know this, this group that was yelling, get out, get out, we don't want you in our country. Here we were saying welcome. We are glad to have you as our neighbors. And that's what it looks like to drive out the darkness with the light. That's what it looks like for that, for that holy light that gets spread into the world and to, to collect those pieces and those shards of that holy light and to hold it up but we can't let that spiritual exhaustion win, and we can't drive out the hate with hate, right? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was so right with that, that that is never a sentiment that's going to win. So whatever those small battles are that we have to fight, that are battles that are rooted in love, that's what's going to marginalize the hates, not yelling back. A piece of... A piece of tradition that holds me up, and it really informs my desire to reach and build strong relationship with American Jewish communities, is a Turkish Haredi joke. <laughs> okay. A Turkish Haredi Sufi walk in midnight, and he sees another Turkish Haredi desperately looking something. And he says, like, what's going on? I left my car keys here. I can't find it. And then he goes on helping him. They look everywhere. And at some point, the gentleman who's trying to help him says, like, are you sure you left your key here? He said, no, I don't think I, I dropped it here. He said, why are you looking here then? Why are you looking for here? He said, this is the only place that, where there's light. <laughs> this is the only place the light is on. So for many, many questions for people of faith that we are facing as a result of modernity, whether it's empowering women and defeating patriarchy, whether it's empowering and creating a respectful space in LGBTQ communities, whether uh, defeating the common rising voices of hate and exclusion. Some of those answers are already in the tradition. Some of the answers are in places where tradition is shedding light upon. But many of those answers are in those dark places where the work, intellectual work, theological work, spiritual work is not being done. And it's very difficult for one tradition to go to those dark places alone. We can, we can shape a different kind of theology, walk into those dark places, holding each other's hands together, and glorify God's names in a very unique and different way together, inshallah.
Imam Abdullah Antepli was the first Muslim chaplain at Duke University, and he has also been the co-creator and co-leader of the Shalom Hartman Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative. He now serves at Duke as the chief representative of Muslim Affairs and an adjunct professor of Islamic Studies. Rabbi Sarah Bassan serves Temple Emmanuel in Beverly Hills, and she was the first executive director of New Ground in Los Angeles, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change. Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Malka Fenavesi, Aaron Farrell, Jill Ganas, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bertina Davis, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Kalasako, and Kristen Lynn. Special thanks this week to the wonderful Aaron Hurt Mannheimer, whose continued friendship and support made this conversation possible. Additional gratitude to Liz Grumbacher, Elena Paul, Isaac Newell, Rick Tremblay, Brendan Sullivan, and Sandra Williams. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, supporting academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, visit templeton.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.